So when that line comes, when I come home to you, San Francisco, that, 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 that's that dream. You're just hoping that someday you get that job or someday you do the thing that you really want to do in life. The timeless entertainer Tony Bennett. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. He had his first number one song in 1951, a little tune called Because of You. And Tony Bennett has not slowed down since. Over his seven-decade show business career, Tony Bennett has proved to be perennially popular. He's as popular today with all age groups as he was in the 50s. In 1998, they finally persuaded Bennett to write his autobiography, a book he called The Good Life. And that's when I met him. And I don't mind admitting I was very starstruck. So here now from 1998, Tony Bennett. For many years, uh, different publishers said we'd love to, you to write a scandal book. And I never really liked that kind of book. I, I read a lot. I love to read. And I always passed on it. And uh, then finally they came, this publisher came to me and, and said, uh, no, just write about your music and art and your life. And uh, I said, you got it. And they said, well, do you mind if we call... The book, The Good Life, and I said, that's a good title. I said, I like that. So then we were on our way to just write the book. Well, the thousands, Wall. the thousands of titles that you could have chosen for the book, I mean, why The Good Life? I mean, it, it's, it describes your life perfectly, but uh, how did well, you? Well, it, it, because it shows that uh, it, if, you, if you happen to know the song, it, it says, you know, uh, seems to be... Uh, you know, oh, the good life, full of fun, seems to be, you know, mm -hmm. uh, very good and all that, you know. But remember, I still want you, and in case you wonder why, well, the good life, kiss the good life goodbye. Mm -hmm. So it says, kiss the good life goodbye. And that's that became the premise of the book. It shows that there's uh, ups and downs, and it's not just pure ice cream and, uh, you know, and uh, a pink cloud somewhere there's see, more that, to life than that and that's what comes into play when you write a memoir isn't it i mean you have to be honest enough with yourself and then with us to tell us the bad things as well as the good things well that's right that's uh, that's something that everybody identifies with because it happens to everybody and uh, that's the reason that uh, i wrote this book to uh, I never really retrogressed in my whole life, but uh, this book made me do that. It forced me to do it, and I went back and looked at my whole life. By the end of it, I just said, uh, well, I've, I've really had a pretty charmed life. In looking back, because you mentioned that in the book, that you're not one normally to look backwards. You're normally a forward-looking person. Right. When you take a moment and look back... Not just at the 50 years you've been in show business, those 50 wonderful years, but your family, because the book opens with your family. Right. Does it almost, does it strike you the way it strikes us, how much you've accomplished, how many things that you've been able to do? I can't believe it. Where, where Bob Hope took me from down in Greenwich Village and where I landed is, it's, it's phenomenal. We should add Bob Hope is the one that made you Tony Bennett, isn't he? That's right. Yeah, he gave me my name. He said, uh, your name is too long for the marquee, Anthony Dominic Benedetto. He said, let's Americanize you and call you Tony Bennett. There was a problem with Joe Barry, or? Yeah, he didn't like, he thought that was an affected name. He, <laughs> in those days, you know, Tony Martin had a name that was, wasn't his name, and Tony Curtis. So he said, let's, let's Americanize you, call you Tony Bennett. It's pretty close to Benedetto. 
Tony Benedetto. But the thing that struck me, page after page after page of this book, the huge stars and the people who weren't yet huge stars who were willing to give you a leg up, who were willing to take you with them, put take you under their wing, put you on the stage with them, take you on tour with them for no particular benefit to them. Because that was the area, uh, that was the era that I lived in, you know, it was, uh, you, you helped one another then. Right now, it's too much bottom of the line and uh, full of greed, you know, everybody says, I got mine, the heck with you, you know, you'd have to figure out a way to do it yourself, and that's too tough. Uh, years ago, it, it was tough, but it, at least if some, you had a colony of uh, entertainers, because vaudeville still prevailed, that if someone had it, the other performers and musicians would say, that guy's really got it. They didn't care where he was coming from. If they knew that someone had talent, that was it. And the public demanded that, too. I'm going to tell you something shocking. When I first started out, if you weren't any good on the stage, you got a hook. They came out with a hook and took you off the stage. And you're, not, said, you're not talking metaphorically, either. You're talking a real hook. No, it was right? a real hook. <laughs> because the public demanded seeing that they worked hard was the, during the Depression. So they worked very hard. And they didn't. They had no nonsense. They didn't have room for any la-di-da stuff. I mean, if someone wasn't any good, then you go right <laughs> off. Next. <laughs> well, luckily for you, I you, you never got the hook, I would imagine. Well, I got booed a couple of times. You know, when you start out, you're an amateur. And, uh, and uh, you know, an amateur in Dex uh, Webster's Dictionary is someone who loves what he's doing. And uh, it's a misused word now. Everybody thinks it's someone that's, you know, just doesn't, hasn't mm -hmm. got it together yet. But, um, but actually, uh, you start out just loving what you're doing. And then as you go along, you meet other performers and... You get inspired from other performances that you see, and you, you roll into becoming professional. It's like a skill like anything else. And it takes time. And it takes time. It takes 10 years to learn how to walk on the stage. Well, you look at all, look at, bless her heart, Leanne Rimes. I saw her on television the other night. Here's a girl of 15 or 16 or whatever she is. She's won Grammys. She's got gold albums. She's been... What in the world does she have to look forward to from this point? I mean, she, does she, uh, she must think that she's got it made now. Well... She, I hope she does, but uh, without that training, it's hard to sustain. And unfortunately, they don't have a, a circuit for performers to go from town to town like they did years ago. The best thing that, that she could ever do, even with the Grammys and everything else, is go into college and, and really hang around good teachers and, and learn what she has to do to sustain and also be true to the really good quality music, which is another of your principles. Well, that's, uh, I believe in that. Uh, that's, uh, you know, the bottom of the line guys don't like that because every month they're forced to come up with something or they get fired. So they'll insist to do something, want you to do something obsolescent. But I like long-range thinking. I'll, I'll sweat it out. I'll rather do something good, and then five years later, everybody will say, look what he was doing five years ago. But, you know, the thing of it is, when I listen now, now, when I listen to Because of You or uh, uh, Rags to Riches, songs from, from when I, the, the, the time when I was born, I think, those are great songs. Those are not just, just tunes that you heard for a couple weeks on the radio and then they faded away. There's a timelessness about those. Yeah, well, they were made well. You know, we'd had great engineers like Frank Laco at Columbia Records, and uh, 
Uh, he recorded everybody from Stravinsky to Duke Ellington to Stan Getz to uh, Andy Williams, Barbara Streisand, myself, you know, and he's a master. He'd get inside our brain. He really knew how to get a quality out of us. And he just was blessed with great ears you know, that would really hear the, how the music should be. And then we had top musicians, the very best musicians. And it was made, the records were made with great care. It wasn't just like something that, uh, let's knock this off on our Walkman. <laughs> that's, that's true. You mentioned in the book, and I, I'd never thought of this before in terms of a musician being a method actor, but you are, in effect, a method actor, aren't you? Well, not what I did, I went to the American Theater Wing, and they, they taught us acting, and uh, I applied it to saying, I'll just become a singer and tell stories with my music. And uh, so I use that technique a lot of times. Uh, but uh, the whole idea is to find a song that tells a story. And uh, it's like uh, this great friend of mine, Ruby Braff, a, a great cornet player, he said, he said, you know, he said, you should tell anybody in Hollywood, he said, that every night you do 25 movies a night. Because each song, we do about 25 songs, and each song tells a story. And and he said, you, you, he says, you actually do 25 movies a night. <laughs> but that's a great, that's a, I'd never thought of that before, but you, yeah. that's exactly right. When I, when I, after I read that passage in your book, I immediately started listening to one of your albums that I've got at home again. And I realize you're exactly right. You're telling me a story as though it was happening to you. Right. Uh, and that's, uh, I, I love it. I mean, I thought these composers that came out of the golden era of the United States were so brilliant to take songs and, and 32 bars tell a whole story that mm -hmm. someone else would take a thousand pages before they would explain the, that story. And uh, I think it's so clever and crafty of, of Cole Porter and Jerome Kern and Gershwin and Irving Berlin and Harold Allen, uh, they, they wrote such great music. But as you tell the story in the book, as great as those composers are, your signature song didn't come from any of them. That's true. Douglas Cross and George Corey were two guys that hung around Billie Holiday and and uh, wrote songs for her. And uh, they gave the song to Ralph Sharon, my music director, for many years. And he said, Tony, you're going to San Francisco. He says, I think this might be a good song for you. And uh, I had no idea that uh, I thought it was going to be maybe a local song, but it, it ended up being an international hit and uh, became my signature song. It's made me a world citizen. But it was never a number one record. Or, or, it was never, never number, number one. one. No, it went up to number 15. <laughs> I guess that's one of those misconceptions if everybody assumes it must have been a number one. But I tell you what, what I think for me is magic. I've never been to San Francisco. I've never lived in San Francisco. I've, I don't know anybody from San Francisco. But we've all got a hometown. Right. And when you sing that song, I'm not necessarily hearing San Francisco. I'm hearing you're singing about my hometown. Right. That I'm proud of. That I know I can always go back there if New York is nasty to me or if Paris seems somewhat yeah. gay. You know, I can I can go back to my hometown. But you see, we and we all dream. You know. So when that line comes, when I come home to you, San Francisco, that, that, that's that dream. You're just hoping that someday you get that job or someday you do the thing that you really want to do in life. And, uh, and I think that's in there too. It's a, it's a wonderful, inspiring song that the fans have been so fabulous to me as a result of that song right through the years. 
But, you know, a, 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 a musician, a country musician I interviewed once told me that she always was very careful about her songs because she said, heaven forbid you should get a number one song or a song that's really popular and have to sing it for the rest of your life, and you didn't like it. Well, there it is. That that belongs to my whole catalog. Uh, I made about, uh, well, in the high 90s uh, of albums. <laughs> and believe me, there isn't one song that I didn't take that test that you just mentioned that that country singer did. Whoever has said that is saying the right thing, because you have to do songs that become famous every night, and if you don't like it, boy, you, you're going to purgatory. Well, they told you day one about the San Francisco that you're going to be singing the song the rest of your life. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but there's something else about you, and and this is maybe another part of the, the Tony Bennett magic is that, as you say in the book, each time you sing a song, it's a little bit different because you're singing in the moment. Right. Well, that's the art of intimate singing, which Bing Crosby invented for all of us, taught us all how to make a living. But then Sinatra came along and really uh, developed it and, and honed it into something even more magnificent, that moment, you know, just what you're thinking. So that actually, if you find songs or are gifted enough to write songs, you could actually tell your whole life. When you listen to Billie Holiday's catalog, you could actually tell her whole life. It would be just like reading her autobiography. You don't need more than that. Just listen to her. And she played, she sang every song with so much feeling and she was so selective about the songs that she sang that you could actually understand her whole life just by listening to Billy. You were, you've done a CD recently of Billy Holiday songs. Yes, uh, Tony Bennett on Holiday. Oh, wow. But that's not your newest CD, ironically enough. No, it's the playground. We did one for little children because we had, uh, after I won an album for the un album of the year, uh, the Beatles generation, uh, the, the girls came up to me from that uh, generation and they said, you won't believe it, but my two-year-old daughter is dancing. With, she's learning how to walk with your record with stepping out with my baby. So I decided to do an album for called The Playground and Songs for Little Children. Wow. Is there anything that you haven't done yet that you really want to do musically? Well, there is. Uh, I wish I had two lifetimes. I really do. Uh, I, I just love it. I love performing. And uh, there's a Duke Ellington album that I'd love to do. And there's also, uh, I've just been commissioned by the Juilliard String Quartet to uh, sing with them. Wow. Isn't that something? Oh, all the... I couldn't believe it. I thought all the venues that you've sung in, from the, the White House, Carnegie Hall, any any place you can imagine of any renown, you've been there. Right. Uh, and, oh, I love it. And, I, I, I have to tell you, one of the most poignant stories you tell in here is when you and Nat King Cole were arranging the big show for the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. Yes. And then Nat King Cole dies before the, 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 before the show, and yet it turned into a spectacular show. Yeah. Well, Sinatra swooped down and brought in every entertainer and made the whole thing work. Yeah, and that was a, one of the great musicians of all time. Wow. You, you must miss Frank Sinatra terribly. Oh, yeah. Well, he was my best friend. And uh, I was his best friend. And, you know, it, it's, a, it's a big, big loss. But, you know, thank God with all the films he made and the, and the records, you know, he'll just live forever and ever. Well, as will you. I mean, look at the, well, the, 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 the calls that you were getting last night on the A&E, the library. Wasn't that something? 
just I incredible. It. I mean, I saw the faces of the people in the audience. It was you were you were mesmerizing them. Oh boy, thanks. The, the kind of the kind of power that you have over all the people of all ages. Well, that's the whole idea. You know, I was taught to sing for the family because uh, I worked at Paramount Theater years ago. We, we used to do seven shows a day as youngsters. <laughs> imagine, and. Uh, the management, Nat Shapiro and Bob Whiteman, they said, you know, when you in the morning, you sing for the teenagers, but in the afternoon, senior citizens. And at night, you're singing for the married couples and young lovers. So make sure if you do a song, do a song that everybody likes, not just one group. And I stayed with that. Even when uh, the fashion changed in the 50s, they, everybody went demographically to just the young audience and forgetting everybody else and... I thought it was pretty sick myself. <laughs> I, I, I didn't have any common sense to it because isn't it logical that if you sing a song that everybody likes, if it does hit, you're going to have that many more sales. Mm -hmm. Everybody's going to buy it, not just one group. Look at all the people, the, the, the young people, the, the, the Kiss, the K.D. Langs, you know, the Clint Blacks who think, who think you are just bread and butter. I mean, you're just you're the greatest thing. <laughs> this is, uh, you're cool. I love it. I, get, I really, I blessed life. You know, really, it's it's dynamite. And, you know, and we've scarcely even mentioned, but we should mention that, that in the book you have a number of your paintings, that the, mm -hmm. the spectacular work that you do, people forget that you've got this whole other side to you, too. Well, I loved, I've always, my whole life I've just uh, sung and painted, and that's what I do. And I, I just, uh, I just, couldn't ask for a nicer life. Couldn't ask for a nicer interview. Thanks so much, Bill. Tony Bennett is 93 now and still making millions happy with his music. Would you do me a favor? If you liked today's episode, would you tell a friend about Now I've Heard Everything? I post new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, my 1990 interview with the man who was a key member of the Israeli Mossad team that went to Argentina and captured notorious Nazi Adolf Eichmann in 1960. My interview with Peter Z. Malkin. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. <laughs>